So previously in, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, we looked at the conversion of Lydia. We saw her baptism along with that of her household. And subsequent to that, and prior to our text this morning, Paul and some others with him, they meet a, a slave girl with a spirit of divination. And we're told that she brought her owners much gain by her fortune telling. And the apostle performs an exorcism. And that's an economic threat to her owners. So they seize Paul and Silas and they bring them before the magistrates. They end up without a hearing, being beaten with rods. Many blows, the text says, were inflicted upon them. Three times, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, three times I was beaten with rods. And they're thrown into prison, where the jailer then puts them, the text says, into the inner prison. Probably the worst part of the prison, perhaps the most secure part of the prison. And he fastened their feet in the stocks. It's a reminder, right? We see this over and over again, that the Gospels are written to communities where the expectation is suffering. That's why I think they're so helpful for us in this cultural moment. It's probably likely that we should expect more suffering. It's not inevitable, of course, but it's likely. And the New Testament is written to communities with that expectation. They're steeled that way, and we need to be steeled that way. The expectation is Suffering, the promise is persecution, and the end is often imprisonment, as we've seen multiple times already in the book of Acts. Think about this. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Philemon, 2 Timothy, and Revelation are all written from prison. Like the New Testament is a book from the margins to the margins. And that doesn't mention 1 Peter expects all the scattered churches of Asia Minor to enter a crucible of suffering, what he calls a fiery ordeal. Hebrews is written to people whose property had been seized and who were to remember, like we may not be in prison, but we are to remember those who are in prison as if imprisoned with them. So, it may seem foreign to our experience, but in the communion of the saints, no experience of the saints is foreign to us. The saints go to prison, down to this day. Large swaths of the New Testament come from prison. As I said, from the margins, from the underside, from the powerless, from captivity, from weakness, from the place where the saints reign, cruciform and victorious with Jesus Christ in this age. And so prison just keeps showing up in the book of Acts. You can almost get the impression that it's an inevitable destination for the saints. Like a reward for faithfulness, a field for gospel witness. And so we have in our text this morning another prison scene, and we'll make a famous one. We'll make two points from it. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. Prayer and praise, and then proclamation. 
It's a remarkable scene, really. So Paul and Silas, they are in some miserable, wretched Roman prison. There there are no human rights organizations for the incarcerated in the empire. Their backs are whipped, we're told, which means their flesh is torn and bleeding, and their feet are locked and immobile, restricting their ability to move. You might remember earlier in Acts when Peter was in prison, he was sleeping in peace the last time we saw him. But here, there's a different manifestation of God's grace and power. About midnight, the text starts. I mean, you'd think they'd be exhausted. (laughs) Six o'clock feels like midnight to me now. (laughs) About, About midnight, you would think it would feel like the spiritual midnight of their battered bodies and their unjustly abused souls. So what are they doing at midnight in this wretched place? Well, what would we be doing? They're praying and singing. Imprisonment, this is the strange thing, and the thing that I think we have to assimilate into our own DNA. Imprisonment occasioned joy for them. Like last week, and we saw it in our psalm today, we sing a new song in Christ. But the new song is often set in a dungeon. In places we don't expect it. They did not view, I think this is critical, right? They did not view being imprisoned as a disaster or even a temporary setback. That's the gap, I think, between their mindset and ours. We saw this starkly back in Acts chapter 5. After being beaten there and released... We were told that the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. One of the most remarkable statements in the whole of New Testament, I think. They were honored to be dishonored. Right? We're indignant at the slightest you know, threat to our standing from our, our authorities. They are honored to be dishonored by the authorities. So we would consider it a defeat for the cultural project of the church. For them, being in prison is a sight of the kingdom breaking forth. How do we locate the kingdom? Well, there's lots of ways to do it, but one way is, Paul says, the kingdom comes, is made present not by accruing power, but by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's what you have in this text, in this dungeon. You have joy in the Holy Spirit. And where there is joy in the Holy Spirit, there is the kingdom of God. The reign of God. Walter Wanger in the novelist said this. He said that the difference between happiness and a deep, sustaining joy is sorrow. How's that? The difference between happiness and joy is sorrow. He says, happiness lives where sorrow is not. When sorrow arrives, happiness dies. It can't stand pain. Joy, on the other hand, arises from sorrow. 
and therefore can withstand all grief. He continues, Joy, by the grace of God, is the transfiguration of suffering into endurance and hope. That's what's happening in this scene. How can this be? Right? How can this be? And why does it feel so foreign to us? Well, part of that is not our fault. We're not imprisoned. Of course, nobody wants this to befall them. We are not masochists. But there's a question texts like this raise for the American church, I think. And the question is this. A lot of questions, actually, but here's one. What kind of vision, what kind of spiritual formation produces praying and singing hymns to God in this situation? Right? We may not be you know, under the kind of fire that the apostles are here. But we want to form the kinds of souls and vision that they have. These are not superheroes or some alien kind of creatures. These are men of flesh and blood with friends and with families and with aspirations like the rest of us. It's a great mistake to picture Paul or the apostles as some Herculean spiritual giant that we could never imitate. It's not that. It's just that they are simply followers of the one who warned them, right? We heard this in the gospel lesson. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant's not above his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. So the apostles, right, in the early church, they've come to expect it because Jesus guaranteed it to them. And half of our brethren around the world have come to expect it and understand that Jesus guaranteed it for the church. So there's a soberness because they see it as just a part and indeed a central part of discipleship. But again, it goes beyond just knowing it's coming. They are honored by it. They count it as joy. They count it as a sign of triumph. This is the distance, right? Jesus pronounces his benediction on this estate of affairs. Think about that. Jesus views this state of affairs as amassing heavenly glory and reward. Again, Peter from 1 Peter 4, he says this, Rejoice insofar as... Now, that's, we just stop right there. Like, How would we finish that sentence? Rejoice insofar as X is occurring. What Peter says is rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. That you might be overjoyed when he appears in glory. What makes this a great honor is that it's a participation. And this is an honor for your sufferings, for your difficulties, for your heartaches. They don't have to be the same but they still draw us into, or they're designed by God to draw us into the mystery of and the participation in Christ's own sufferings. There isn't Jesus' sufferings out here and then our sufferings over here. It doesn't matter if your sufferings are not the same. Your sufferings are are designed to call you into the mystery of his sufferings, to partake of his own sufferings. And that's an enormous dignity to be drawn into that mystery and that luminosity of the cross. 
And this is why Peter can say, the same Peter, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory, he says, and the spirit of God rests upon you. So insults from the powers that be, mockery from the powers that be, disgrace heaped upon the church or the teachings of Scripture from the powers that be, even beatings and wounds make you a resting place for the glorious Spirit of God. That's what they do. So in short, right, they had a theology of suffering, a rich one. They believed these astounding words. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I mean, that really is shocking. Every time I read it, I'm, a little, I'm still a little shocked by it. I think we actually believe the opposite. If you took the Beatitudes and inverted them, you would get the mindset of the American church. But it's not just that Jesus says, look, if you're persecuted, if your property is seized and you're imprisoned, that is a blessed state. It's not just that he says that, though that's scandalous enough. He says... Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. Like Jesus locates the kingdom in what for us would be places of obvious defeat. Blessed are you when others revile you. My goodness, we can't take the slightest, like even political insult without having to respond. Blessed are you if people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Make sure you take to your blog and refute them. Rejoice and be glad. That's what Jesus says. Are people slandering you? Are they insulting you? Are they reviling you? Are they reviling your faith? You know what they're doing? They're amassing heavenly glory for you. Rejoice and be glad. That's the first thing Jesus says. For your reward is great in heaven. That For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All of this and a lot more, it's utterly counterintuitive to us. It cuts deeply against us. Not just our nature, not just our fallen nature, but our Americanism. But it was embedded in the mind and the DNA of the apostolic church, the suffering church, the church of the martyrs. Now, listen, this is sober. I understand that. But this is the key to see. And this is right in Jesus' words. It's in Peter's words. This is not morbidity. They were rejoicing in their sufferings. Jesus said, not only are you blessed, leap for joy. Tertullian, the second century church father, in his book, he wrote a book called To the Martyrs. He says this, the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. Now listen, perhaps that's a bit much. I'm sure they felt pain. That's 
probably an idealized description, but their heavenly perspective was transmuting their agony into spiritual joy. And that's what we want to happen in the midst of our perhaps much smaller but real suffering and triumph and heartache. They were praying and singing hymns to God. Almost certainly the Psalms. So what you have in this text is a confession of faith, a testimony of the most luminous kind. This is the kingdom of God. Not merely a prelude to the kingdom, this is the kingdom. And then notice what happens in the text. We get this phrase, and the prisoners heard them. They're a captive audience. Right? This means Paul and Silas were praying and singing in the inner part of the, you know, inner part, the worst part of the prison. They were praying and singing aloud. They were praying and singing with some volume. We always have listeners and watchers, beloved. We do. People are watching us, especially in our adversity. And we want to ask, what are they hearing? What are they seeing? We want that to be, they want to, we want them to hear and see prayer and praise to the triune God. And suddenly we're told there's this great earthquake, there's thunder from heaven. It's a response to their prayers and praises from the throne of God. The foundations of the prison are shaken. And all the doors are opened and everyone's bonds were unfashioned. It's a great act of liberation and deliverance. Doesn't seem like God does this much for subsequent generations of Christian prisoners, but he does it here for the apostles. And whether he does it this way or some other way, it is true, and we must not lose sight of this. Suffering is not an end in itself, right? The God who calls us to joyfully suffer, to rejoice in it, to view it as glory, will also in due time deliver us from it, right? From suffering and affliction. And this earthquake anticipates the shaking of the heavens and the earth, which at the end will vindicate all of his afflicted saints and martyrs. And so you get the shaking, and the jailer wakes up. Apparently he may have been asleep. But he sees the door open, and he assumes that the prisoners have escaped. And so what does he do? He's about to kill himself. Why would you, he's about to kill himself because there was actually on the, you know, it was a legal statute in Roman law that guards who permitted prisoners to escape on their watch were to be executed. So he's ready to commit suicide. And Paul intervenes. Paul cries out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we're all here. Now, now notice, we are all here. Not only Paul and Silas, but remarkably, even though everyone's bonds were unfastened, no prisoners take advantage of the opportunity to escape. And for Paul and Silas, this is an opportunity, yet again, to bear gospel witness. And they put the pro- they could just walk out the prison now. They put the propagation of the gospel above their own liberty. So in intervening, and now it's not just that Paul prevents the suicide of this man here. 
It's important to see this in the story. Paul prevents the suicide and the self-harm of one who has unjustly imprisoned him. Who's placed you in the stocks. And again, what is that? Right? That is an imitation of Jesus. Who loved his enemies. Who prayed for his murderers. In fact, in, in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Jesus did this. Stephen did it. And now Paul does it. And we are to do it. Again, it's not for super Christians. It's just basic Christian ethics. We don't face this same threat. I understand that. We face other threats. They're real. And they're serious. But we have to ask ourselves, as followers of Jesus, do we love our enemies? Do we pray for those who abuse us? Do we bless? That is, do we pronounce a benediction on those who are cursing us? Paul has saved not just a jailer's life here. He saved his captor's life. He saved his enemy's life. And the second point, then, is, our, is proclamation. Proclamation. So the jailer gets the lights on. He rushes in. He's trembling with fear. And he says to Paul and Silas famously, it's in verse 30, what must I do to be saved? It's not clear he even understands salvation. Maybe salvation from the judgment symbolized by the earthquake. Saved, perhaps, to worship the God who he heard being prayed to and hymned. He probably doesn't fully understand even the question, but it is the right question. And he's asked it to the right people. Right? Rarely has anyone earned the right to a hearing the way Paul and Silas have in this text by their suffering witness. And it's just a beautiful simplicity here. This is the gospel, beloved. Right? He asked the question, what must I do to be saved? And they reply elegantly and simply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved You and your household. We're not saved by suffering well. We're called to suffer well, but all of us suffer in a pretty broken fashion. We're saved by the Lord Jesus. So don't mishear the first half of the sermon. It's not a prescription for works. When when asked, how are you saved? Paul doesn't say, oh, you have to be a spiritual superhero and have your back lashed like me and sing praises at midnight to God in the prison. It's very simple. There are no works prescribed. There's no view of X or Y or Z that must be adopted, just faith. Faith alone. Not faith in general, but assent to trust in the truth concerning Jesus. And, of course, it's not the faith which saves us. Faith is an instrument, as we say. It's an open-handed reception of Jesus. He is the one who saves us. So all of our life, all of our blessedness, the whole of our salvation is in Jesus Christ. All of your life, your blessedness, your salvation, your joy, your glory is in Christ Christ. 
Right? Every spiritual blessing is ours in the heavenly places in Christ, Paul says in Ephesians. He is your wisdom. And he is your righteousness. And your sanctification and your redemption. And notice that he is called here the Lord Jesus. Now, we're used to this. We say this all the time. But this is new in the book of Acts. The incarnate Son of God now raised in glory. That Jesus is the Lord. The Kyrios, the the, the Greek word for Yahweh. Believe in that one who is raised and exalted as Lord and you will be saved. Paul later writes, we heard this in the call to worship. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... Right? That's it. That's the Christian confession. Right? What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 12? No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, now this precludes being saved by thinking of Jesus as a philosopher or a great moral teacher or something short of Lord. The confession is Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. So this is the promise, and it's being made, it's being proclaimed to one who's part of this oppressive Roman system persecuting Paul and Silas. You will be saved, Mr. Philippian Jailer, you and your household. Now, I'm not going to talk about household salvation or baptisms because we looked at that a couple weeks ago with Lydia. Here, they speak the word of God to him. They instruct him. And they must have spoken about baptism because he gets up and he gets baptized. Chrysostom, the 5th century uh, bishop of uh, Constantinople, he beautifully puts it this way. He says, he washed and he was washed. He washed their stripes, which he did, and he was washed of his sins. And again, this, this jailer has the same instinct Lydia did. He takes them into their house and provides food for them. I'm not going to go over that again because we spoke about it, I think it was last week or two weeks ago. But the point is, hospitality is part of an authentic response to the gospel. God welcomes us into his house and we open our house to his people. And we're told then that he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. And I want to close by focusing on this joy. He rejoiced along with his whole household. Now, remember, at this point, the Philippian jailers, this man's livelihood and perhaps his life are still at risk. Right? There's no guarantee he's not going to be executed. And yet there is this deep spiritual joy. Right? It was the same joy in the Holy Spirit that animated Paul and Silas when they sang and prayed at midnight. Jesus had commanded, rejoice and be glad. Leap for joy at persecution. And it's precisely because Paul and Silas had done that, that they had the opportunity to be faithful witnesses. Because they did that, the jailer and his house have the joy of sins forgiven. Right? Perhaps another way to say this is, our sufferings are for ourselves. Right? They're for the eternal well-being of our souls when we're gathered into the mystery or the participation of Christ's sufferings. But perhaps even more profoundly in the communion of the saints is that your sufferings are for other people. Paul says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. 
If we suffer, it's for your salvation. So not only are your sufferings a gift, a transfiguring gift of glory from God to you, they're a gift to the body of Christ. And that's what happens in this text. Paul and Silas suffer, and they show this joy in the midst of their persecution, and this whole Philippian family has the great joy of sins forgiven. So to this one low-level functionary in the Roman prison system, God, through this apostolic witness, has brought salvation. He has confessed that Jesus is Lord. And that means on the last day, he will confess with us and with a great multitude, right, from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. He'll confess what he believed and confessed in our text. Namely, that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess. What the jailer confessed, what we confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord, raised from the dead, exalted to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen.